Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Blessings to all you lovely people out there. Without going into all the details, something has been nudging me towards sharing the following video with you for several weeks. I'm posting it particularly for my church friends out there, as I have a nagging feeling it's what some of you need in your journey right now. The core of the understanding shared in the video has been a key element in my own journey. Because I preached this back in 2012, we've made a few cuts and edits to better reflect where I am in my belief and journey at this present time. So here we go. Hope you enjoy. Please excuse the hair in the video. It looks awfully thin. All right. A uh, couple of things just starting out. Um, can I qualify at a deeper level the things that I am about to say to you this morning? The answer to that is yes, but in 45 minutes, no. So please put what we say this morning into that context. We can have more conversation about it, but not this morning. Uh, secondly, because of time, I want to cut straight into what we have to say. All right, Jeremiah chapter 31. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I want to talk to you about an amazing truth that Chris and I have come into over recent years, which is an appreciation of what the new covenant really is. Now, if you were to build an addition onto your house or an extension, as we call it in the UK, would you have a new house? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you would simply have your old house with a new bit added on. Now, the problem is, in the context of the new covenant, that most people's understanding and experience of the new covenant is exactly this. An old covenant with a new bit added on. And so our tendency is to only understand the new covenant as being all the requirements of the old covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments, but thank God we have Jesus now. So even though that law has made us unworthy, thank God we have Jesus who deals with our sin. I have to tell you that is not the new covenant. The new covenant is new. That's why it's called a new covenant. It's very deep, isn't it? I will make a new covenant. Now, I need you to just um, humor me a little bit this morning. In that it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, because I haven't got time to qualify 
what I want to say there. Will you just allow me an indulgence on that? That when we see house of Israel and house of Judah, would you allow me to use the people of God, my people? Would that be okay? Some people think that I'm a replacement theologist because of those things. But if I thought there was something to replace, I might be. But I don't think there's anything to replace from what God did with Abraham. So we're not even going to get into that discussion. But would you allow me to do that today to say my people? So we read here in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. Now, the next verse says something critically important in the understanding of what has just been said. Verse 32 says, it will not be like, okay, I want you to note that, it will not be like, what will it not be like? It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I led them by the hand out of Egypt. So the question would be, which covenant then is he talking about that he says it will not be like it? Well, it's the covenant that was made with the children of Israel who were led out of Egypt by Moses, though therefore we can say without too much further study that he means the old covenant, the covenant of the law and the Ten Commandments. Would you agree? Now I want you to note the wording there. He says, whatever this new covenant is, you need to know it will not be like that covenant. So therefore, if the message that we preach, if the status that we seek to attain... If the requirement that we place on others looks like, sounds like, feels like, smells like that old covenant, it's not the new covenant. Now this already becomes challenging because most of us, you like me, would have to acknowledge that for most of our lives then, we have lived, taught, preached and tried to keep alive the old covenant about which God says the new covenant will not be like that. It will not be like it. Now, if we jump across to what is a repeat of this statement in Jeremiah 31, in Hebrews chapter 8, we get some extra little bits added on by a Jew writing to Hebrews. And so if we go to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, here's how he begins the conversation. He says, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, now wait a minute, who gave that first covenant? Did it come from Moses or did it come from God? It came from God to Moses, but God was the initiator of that first covenant that we have understood is that covenant of the law and the commandments. And yet here we have a statement saying basically that there was something wrong with that covenant. That that covenant had within it a fatal flaw that would never allow it to succeed. Now here's the problem, if we try to initiate the principles of that covenant to create a better society, we have failed before we begin. Because it is fatally flawed. You see, the law and the commandments was never meant to tell you how to live. They were only there to show you how you could not live. It was not there to elevate your righteousness. It was there to point out your unrighteousness in very simple terms. You were never meant to keep it because you couldn't. And so that first covenant, right from the beginning, had something wrong with it. That something wrong with it was that it could never bring change to your life. 
And so he goes on to say, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, then no place would have been sought for another. So, so deep was the flaw in that covenant that God himself was seeking a place to introduce another covenant. Now he goes on to say in that verse 7, but God found fault with the people. Now you need to understand, if he does not change that old covenant, God has no alternative but to find fault with the people. So every time we release the revelation of the old covenant, we are giving God the right to find fault with people. And he will find fault with you because it says here, God found fault with the people because of that covenant which he has already declared had something wrong with it and needed to be replaced. And then he goes on to say from verse 8, the, the same statement from Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And so he goes on to repeat that statement from Jeremiah 31. But then he adds a little bit on the end of that. So from verse 12, he finishes that statement with, For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. But then he adds on in verse 13, By calling this covenant new... So even the very discipline of calling this covenant new had implications. These are those implications. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Now, how many of you understand the word obsolete? The word obsolete means that the original manufacturer is no longer making that product. And because he is no longer making it, he does not manufacture any spare parts to keep it going when it fails. So if God is the manufacturer of the first covenant and has declared it obsolete, that means he's not sending that out of heaven anymore and he's not sending any bits from heaven to repair it. So my question would be this. Why is the church putting so much effort into into manufacturing spare parts for a system that God said is obsolete and he no longer supports? And so he says that uh, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. God's desire is for what was obsolete and aging to disappear. Which means the law and the commandments, God's objective in the new covenant was to cause them to disappear. Have you ever thought it just might be God who's causing the Ten Commandments to disappear from the courthouse in America because it's an obsolete system that he no longer supports because all it ever brings is condemnation and death. If you're going to use your energies to fight a battle, use them in the right place over the right thing. Some of you are upset now. Legs going, foot tapping. I'll give you one more verse on that. Ephesians chapter 2, 14, 15 says this. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. What that means is he has abolished in his flesh the law 
with its commandments and regulations. That's what it means. He's abolished them. Commandments and regulations abolished in his flesh. Did you get that? So, the question then would be, and I'm going to go back to Jeremiah 31 to, to continue this conversation on that statement. <clears throat> it says, the time is coming, declares the Lord. So the question is, when is the time? Because if we know when the time is, we know that all this stuff that's being said has begun. Now, the problem is, because what is about to be said so radically challenges and therefore shifts the existing belief system of those to whom he is speaking and causes them all kinds of issues, theologians put this thing in the future. Let's just move it out there. This happens after the rapture, if there is one. This happens in the millennium, if there is one. I'm just messing with you. Although I don't know if there is a millennium or a rapture, but I'm still just messing with you. It's somewhere out there, somewhere. We just put it ahead because the time is coming. And we cannot believe that what is now radically being said could possibly be in existence now. So like good theologians, we say the time is coming, which means... Well, I want to challenge that thought. Luke chapter 22 says that Jesus met his disciples on the day of the Passover, before he would give his life for the sins of the world. And they met in an upper room and they shared together the Passover meal. And when they got to the end of the Passover meal, Jesus took the cup, the fourth cup, the last cup of the Jewish Passover celebration. And as he lifts the cup into the air to bless the cup, he says something that is not in the normal practice of the Jewish Passover celebration. He breaks the mold. He sends it down a new direction. It says almost this is the end of the Passover now and something new is about to break out. So he lifts the cup and he says these words, this cup is... Now, now is that past tense? Is that future tense? I may agree that's present tense. This cup is... Now listen, our first introduction to the words that were used in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Our first introduction to it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I want you all to drink of it and I want you to drink all of it. He was declaring something has radically shifted in this moment. This cup is the cup of the new covenant. So what Jesus was declaring that in that cup and in the, in the filling of his own cup through his blood... That what was prophesied by Jeremiah had sprung to life in that moment. And so I can say without one shadow of doubt that the time of the new covenant began on that day when Jesus lifted that cup. Because he said it is the new covenant in my blood. We live in the days of the manifest reality of a new covenant. So everything that we are about to see is a reality here for us now. Okay? So, uh, he goes on to say, um, verse, um, uh, this, verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with my people after that time, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law in their minds 
And I will put, I write it on their hearts. So I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Now I want you to notice the, the tense here. It's singular. I will put my law singular in their hearts and write it singular on their minds. Okay? I will put my law singular in their minds. I will write it singular on their hearts. Now this is very important that you understand this because it's going to give a context to the whole revelation of the new covenant. Now here's the problem. When we read that same verse in Hebrews chapter 8, we seem to have a contradiction. Because in Hebrews chapter 8 and um, uh, verse 10, it says, I will put my laws, plural, in their minds and write them, plural, on their hearts. Now, I want to contend something with you a little bit here. The angle from which we view anything determines our perception of that thing. And where I am grateful for the accuracy of Scripture, one also has to understand and acknowledge that when we translate any Scripture, we translate it through a certain filter of understanding. Therefore, it's not that we're doing something wrong, other than that the filter through which we pass something will inevitably influence the way that we express that. And so I would contend with this translation of this verse. It should read like it does in the Hebrew. My law, I will put it in your hearts. My law, singular, write it, singular. Now, let me just pose something to you here. The word that is translated law there in Hebrews 8 and verse 10 that they translate as laws with an S... That word that is used there is the Greek word nomos. And that Greek word is used 198 times in the New Testament. On only two occasions is it translated as laws, plural, with an S. And those two occasions are here in verse 8. And in the repeat of this very verse in Hebrews 10 verse 16. They are the only two occasions out of 198 times in the New Testament that this word is translated with an S. Laws. So 166 times it's written as law. Sorry, 196 times it's written as law singular. Now I understand why this is done. Because unless you understand what has happened to the old covenant, you will naturally think what he's going to do is put his laws in our mind and write them on our hearts. A more accurate translation would probably be to say, I will write to them on their hearts my laws. I will put in them, in their minds, my law, singular. I will write to them on their hearts My law, singular, I will put in them, in their hearts, my law. So the plural is them, not the law. Now, here's why that's important to understand. I cannot handle keeping the law when it's written 
in a book and when it's engraved in stone. Dear Jesus, help me if I should have to live a single day with those rules and regulations and commands and laws constantly popping up in my mind and constantly challenging my heart because I couldn't keep them when they were in the book and I couldn't keep them when they were engraved in stone so my life would be completely and totally miserable because I would be reminded every living second of every day of my incapacity to live right before a holy God. That sounds like hell to me. And so we have to understand there is a singular nature to this. Okay? Now, let's come back to my scripture in Jeremiah 31. When he begins to now talk about this, he presents a challenge to our our traditional concepts of just about everything. Okay? And he, he poses it with this, I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts. Now, whatever that law is, whatever it is that he puts in our mind and writes on our hearts, it does three things. It, allows, it says it allows him to be their God and they to be his people. Okay? It allows them to know the Lord, which is a place of intimacy, which you must appreciate uh, that was an alien concept to the Jewish mind. Knowing the Lord in that intimate way was an alien concept. But whatever it is he's proposing allows them to know the Lord. And then a third and staggering thing that he makes a statement of, he says, and it makes it possible for their sins and unrighteous acts to be remembered no more. Now it seems to me that the objective of the new covenant is not pointing out how wrong I am, but pointing out how freed I am, how forgiven I am, how made righteous I am. So the whole direction of this has radically changed. Their sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. Now, here's where it poses even challenges to our concepts of evangelism. Because if we believe what is being said here, and remember, when when is the time that this is going to happen? Is this happening now? Is this covenant in place now? Then everything that he says here is in place now. So putting his law in their minds, writing it on our hearts. And he says, verse 34, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What a fascinating statement that he has made there fascinating statement they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest how many of you remember what Jesus answer was when he was asked about where the kingdom was what the kingdom was when the kingdom would come what what did Jesus respond to that in 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 Luke 17 verse 21 he says this this is the deal he says stop looking here there and everywhere because the kingdom of God is where within you So he begins to say, in the new covenant, the gospel is not about getting anything into anybody. It's about releasing something that's already in somebody to allow it to break out in reality. Now here's how he qualifies that. He says, because their sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. Now here's the problem. Our traditional viewpoint in the old covenant says that you can come to a place where your sins and unrighteous acts will be remembered no more the new covenant says that's not where you finish that's where you start 
So the message of the new covenant is not, you need to have your sins forgiven. The message of the new covenant is, listen to this, your sins, though they be many, are already forgiven. Now some of you struggle with that, but it's because we never made the journey into the new covenant. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It is finished. Why did he use the word it? Because then it was not able to be manipulated by our religious mindset to say, oh, well, he meant this, or he meant that, or he meant if you do this, or you accomplish that. He just said, it is finished. And forevermore, the message changed from being about what you do to about what he has done. And the cross worked. And because of that... Because of that, we start... So, how of you familiar with the word gospel? We talk about preaching the gospel. Most people are not preaching the gospel at all. You see, the word gospel means good news. So, for something to be gospel, it has to have two vital ingredients. First of all, it has to be good. And secondly, it has to be news. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but our message of condemnation and judgment... And annihilation didn't sound very good. Now you might say, but it's necessary. That's because you have a control-based mindset that says the only way to deal with people is to frighten them. Jesus never came to frighten anybody. In fact, it strikes me that the people who we would want to frighten to become righteous, Jesus did the very opposite. He said, you're loved. You're affirmed. I don't condemn you. We wouldn't have got on very well with Jesus, I guarantee it. I guarantee you that Jesus would never have won the vote to get on the board of 95% of the churches in America. Seriously. And so it has to be good and it has to be news. Now, now, if we come with a message that says, you can't keep it up, you're never good enough, you're not going to do it, you're condemned, you better repent, you better do this, you better accomplish that, you better stop this, you better be that. That doesn't sound very good, does it? And guess what? It's not news. There's no news in that. And so we get this total shift in our application of the truth that now comes through the new covenant. Now, we have to come back to this. So he says, I'll put my law in your mind. I'll write it on your hearts. So what is that law? What, what, what is it that he puts in our minds? See, see some people think that the, the answer to that question is found in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. When a man came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, it isn't. That's not what he's going to put in your mind and write on your heart. You see... He breaks, Jesus in his wisdom breaks down the whole law and the commandments and the prophets into two statements. He says, okay, here's the deal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Now, how many of you have done that? If any hands go up, I'll be casting a spirit of deception out of you. (laughs) And then he said, and if you've done that, 
Then the second thing is, love your neighbor as yourself. So not just love your neighbor, because some of you could say, well, I love my neighbor. But love your neighbor as yourself. Or in other words, afford to your neighbor all the emotion, resources, ambition, effort that you give to yourself. He said these, these two, if you... Now, the truth is, if they're the two things, and even if we break it down from all the commandments and all the law, if they're the two things that he puts in our mind and writes on our hearts, we are in deep trouble. Because we can't keep even either of those when you summarize the whole thing down to two... We can't even keep them. So God help us if that's what he's going to put in our mind and write on our hearts. And so there are two reasons why that is not what is meant by I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. Because A, you couldn't keep it. So why would God want to put something inside you that you could never keep? And secondly, because you haven't read the question accurately. If you read it accurately, the man came and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So Jesus said, Seeing as you've asked, in the law, this is the greatest commandment. It was not a message about what he was going to do in the new covenant. It was a specific answer to a specific question about the old law. So that is not it. That's not what he's putting in your heart. Something that John 14, 15 summarizes what it is that's going to put in our mind and write on our hearts. It doesn't. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now, of course, because of the way that we have been educated in our viewpoint of truth, the moment we hear the word commands, we think commandments. And then we think ten commandments. And then we think the law along with that. So we get to think that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments. He knew we couldn't keep the commandments. Why would he say that? What he really said, if you look accurately at the translation, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Now that's very different because one is regulational, the other is relational. He was saying, I don't want you keeping rules and regulations, commandments, but I do want you to be in relationship by doing what I say. And so those are not what, a, what it is that is in our mind and hearts. Now, we then get on to the implications of what we've talked about. Because the implications are absolutely huge. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23 summarizes his message. He's caught the new covenant reality. The Apostle Paul has understood that the old covenant is now obsolete and is passing away. He has understood that Christ in his flesh has totally removed that from us. And so in view of that, Paul says something that is extremely challenging to our mindset. He says in chapter, in chapter 10 and verse 23, and the context is interacting with the culture. His actual story is about meat offered to idols being eaten by Christians. Now, how many of you face that challenge daily? <coughs> oh, I really struggled today, Pastor, you know, with the meat that was offered to the idols that I was going to buy therein. Now we, so, so that has no contextual relevance to us. It did to the Corinthians. Paul's point here is that where we interact with the culture, because that was a cultural issue, he says these words... 
that, that in the context of interacting with the culture around us, everything is permissible. Now, to every pastor's discontent, he says it again. Everything is permissible. Every pastor's screaming, don't do that. What are the people going to do? Don't tell them everything is permissible. But you see, Paul has the courage to preach the truth of the new covenant that changes our lives and brings us to freedom. So he says everything. How much is everything? So in the context of our interacting with the culture, unless I am badly mistaken... The Apostle Paul says twice, everything is permissible. But then he goes on to qualify that statement by saying, but not everything is beneficial, not everything is helpful, not everything will edify you or is constructive or will build you up, but everything is permissible. And then it gets worse. I mean, you know, if you would get thrown out of most churches for doing what Paul does next in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And particularly verse 12, because the context here is sexuality. And the Apostle Paul, he does it again. He says, everything is permissible. You say, how can everything be permissible? That's because we think through the framework of good and evil and right and wrong, which got Eve into trouble and Adam in the first place. But he says in the new covenant, if your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more, then Paul says, you have to understand everything is permissible. And he says it again. Everything is permissible. But then he qualifies that with these statements. He says, but everything is not beneficial, and I will not be mastered by anything. So the, 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 the application of what I have just told you is not go out and do what the heck you like in the culture without appreciating there's a decision to be made. It doesn't mean go out and find the first girl or boy that you meet outside the church today as you leave and go sleep with them. But what he's saying is you can. There's no law to stop you. That's what he's saying. Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. So you say, well, what is Paul's point? Paul's point is this. In the new covenant, we do not make our decisions according to the requirements of a regulation. We make our decisions according to the requirements of a relationship. So it doesn't come from law, it comes from love. We don't do it because we have to, we do it because we want to. And so people say, well, will people not just run wild if you tell them this? The truth is they might. I have a personal view on that. That if when you tell them it, they might, then it was always in the heart anyway. All that's happened is they've just revealed their heart. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, listen, you look at a woman and undress her and have sex with her in your head. You might as well have just done it because you've done it anyway in your soul. And one of the things we are afraid of in the body of Christ is truth and reality. So we mask it under rules and performance and appearance. When I say, let's let it all come to the surface, because here's the wonderful thing. When it comes to the surface in the new covenant, and you've messed up and failed and made a total pig's ear of the thing, and you come in, and I, as your pastor, have a message for you. Your sins and unrighteous acts, he remembers no more. That's where we start. And suddenly there's a lift and there's an acceptance and there's a healing and there's a freedom because the whole foundation of what we believe has radically and completely and totally changed. Okay, we're doing pretty good for time. Right. So what is the law then? 
I wish we had longer than 45 minutes, but not today. I'll come back. What is it? What is it, the law, that he puts in our mind and writes on our heart? The singular thing. What is it? Well, without getting too deep theologically, it now becomes the law of love. Now, it's still a law. Just like gravity is a law. Just like lift is a law. But it's one law that he puts in our heart. It says in Romans 13 and verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. So when we've come to the end of the law, and I wish I could talk to you about it, how Christ fulfilled the law. And once a thing is fulfilled, there's nothing left to be required or wanted or needed. And what we are left then, he says, here's what I'm going to write on your heart. The law of love is going to be written in your heart. Now, he qualifies that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John qualifies it as this. He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. No, I love that because all the pressure of my Christian experience growing up was all about how much I loved God and what I did to show how I loved God. So with all due respect, there is significance in things like fasting and praying and giving. They're all important and significant. But if we try to use them as a badge of honor to try and illustrate to God how much we think we love him, God said, I don't see that as an effort because I was never in this for you to show me how much you love me I only ever got in this for you to realize how much I love you so when we approach this issue with people who are not part of the ecclesia of God the body of Christ our message to them is not we have not come to tell you how much you should love God we are releasing to you how much God loves you This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And verse 19 of that same chapter, we love him because he first loved us. So the love he wants to see comes when we have realized and got a because in our life of how much he loved us. Okay, so, my little time that's remaining. The new covenant is therefore a one law covenant. And this is the miracle of it. You know, God said, let's... We, you're never going to keep all that lot. You can't even keep ten. And if I make you an offer of two, you can't even keep two. So let's keep this real simple. The new covenant is a one law covenant. And that's what he puts in our minds and writes on our hearts. Now, Genesis chapter 15 gives us a story. He tells us about Abraham and God having a conversation. And God's real keen to make covenant with Abraham. And so he says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. Take some animals and rams and, and, and bulls and, and, and birds and I want you to sla slaughter the animals and separate the carcasses and, and put the halves of the carcass making a pathway through the middle. Now, Abraham was familiar with this. This was not uncommon practice in the culture of his time, in making covenant through blood. And so Abraham prepares for this covenant to be made. He knows what he's doing. When it comes time to make the covenant, to walk through the blood, God puts Abraham asleep. So Abraham's in cuckoo land, just he's dreaming, he's away, he's seeing stuff. And when he wakes up, it's all done. God's already walked through the blood in the middle of these broken bodies and has come out the other side. And when Abraham wakes up, God says, I've made a covenant with you. 
And everything you read there is my covenant that I made with you. My covenant that I made with you. You need to understand, Abraham never made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham. Now here's the deal. Listen to this. Listen carefully. If you didn't make it, you can't break it. Did Abraham make a covenant with God? So therefore, could Abraham make, break the covenant that was made that day? If you didn't make it, you can't break it. Now, I have to take you on a bit of faith here and courage. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And there on the cross, God himself passed through the divided carcass of his own son as a representative of humanity. And meanwhile, we were asleep. We didn't participate in it. We didn't make a covenant with God. But God off his own back made a covenant with us by passing himself through the body of Jesus, the broken carcass, so when he came out the other side, he could say, my covenant that I made with you. Now, here's where you've got to be courageous. If you didn't make it, you can't break it. I am not a covenant breaker with God because I never made a covenant with him in the first place so he can now say to me your sins and unrighteous acts I remember no more because if you didn't make it you can't break it so he looks at our world with a loving heart and says guys here's the good news you didn't make a covenant with me in the first place if you didn't make it you can't break it so I can say to you today your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more and suddenly we are released into a new Covenant, a new revelation, a new understanding. So one last thing. The new covenant is a one-law covenant. It's the expression of love that comes in that covenant making with us. And here's the difference between what he writes on our hearts now and what was written on stone before. What was written on stone... And what we interpret so often through here is a law that we keep. But when he said, I'll make a new covenant, and this is the law that I will put in your minds. This is the law, singular, right on your heart. He was saying, this is not a law that you keep. This is a law that I keep. So in the new covenant, there's one law to be kept. And you don't have to keep it. He has already kept it, which means that we have been given access to all the blessing of the new covenant, all its revelation and all its message. So we no longer live to keep a law, but to respond to a love that is relentless and unchanging. And this is the dynamic truth of the new covenant. And this is the one truth that if you allow yourself to know it will make you free indeed. There are many things I could and would now say in relation to what you've just heard. What I shared did not mark the end of a journey for me, but the beginning of one. I trust it will mark the beginning of a journey for some of you today. A journey into a more beautiful gospel than the one imposed upon you through the dogma of an institutionalised Christianity, in which I would have to include much of the evangelical world. The last recorded verbal declaration of Jesus from the cross was it is finished 
I believe this is what is now written on our hearts and is the foundational reality from which our thoughts must derive and our lives should be lived. This is the new normal in which I would love you to live. Love and blessings to you all. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.